Turning away from Jesus means rejecting life and salvation and embracing death and destruction. God is sovereign. He knows all things and uses all things, including human sin, to accomplish his eternal plan. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 13, John 13, beginning at verse 18. As you know, we've been in the study in the Gospel of John. We're now in the last week of Jesus' life on earth, also known as Passion Week. Uh, passion not only refers to strong emotion, passion also means, quote, to endure suffering. And those of you who know anything about crucifixion understand that crucifixion is an enormously painful, extremely suffering way of death. You can hang on the cross for two or three days. So Passion Week means a lot in terms of suffering. It is the suffering of our Lord for the sins of the world. Today's lesson takes place on Thursday night. So John 13 through 17, those five chapters, all cover events and teachings and promises of our Lord Jesus Christ that occur in less than 24 hours. Most of them occur in less than 12 hours, so it's a very concentrated period of time. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room celebrating the Passover meal in John 13. Now, at social events, it was expected that a servant would be at the door with a a, a water basin to wash your feet. You walked in sandals and dirty roadways, etc., so it was a socially acceptable an expected thing that a servant would wash the guest's feet before dinner. But Jesus had arranged for there to be no servant present. And recall that the disciples certainly were not going to wash each other's feet because they had been arguing at dinner about who was the greatest, who's going to have the positions of honor when Jesus overthrows Rome and starts his kingdom. So last week we looked at the fact that Jesus took the role of the lowest slave and he washed their dirty feet. God in human flesh is on his knees watching their dirty, smelly feet. And he says, because I love you, I serve you. Therefore, I have given you an example as I have loved and served you. You should also love and serve each other in the same way. So let's pick up the narrative here at verse 18 after that occurs. Jesus says, beginning in verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled, quote, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, close quote. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. The he, I am he, is not in the Greek. It's I am, name of God. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Here's our principle for these first three verses. Don't let hypocrites distract, disillusion, or dissuade you. Stay focused on following Jesus and fulfilling his commission. Let me say that again. Don't let hypocrites distract you, disillusion you, or dissuade you. Stay focused on following Jesus and fulfilling his commission. Jesus says, I chose you. I know you. As a matter of fact, he knows them intimately. He's been spending every day for the last three years with him. Of course, he's God, so he knows what they think, what they feel, everything about them. Jesus chose the disciples that his father had pre-selected for him to choose. These were the ones who were going to carry out the gospel mandate after he went back to heaven. And we know that Jesus gave a great deal of thought to choosing the 12. As a matter of fact, Luke 6 tells us it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. 
And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he named his apostles. I don't know, I don't know that I've ever spent a whole night in prayer. I've spent a lot of nights not sleeping well, so I pray when I don't sleep well, but I mean just dedicate a whole night to say, this particular decision I'm facing is so crucial that I'm going to devote the entire night to praying about it. Well, that's what Jesus did. That choosing of the twelve was an utterly, uh, eternally important decision. He spent all night praying, and God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, told him who to pick. By the way, Jesus was not asking for volunteers. He had a lot of followers. He unilaterally chose them, the twelve, and he said, you follow me. It was a command from the commander-in-chief of the universe telling each disciple whom he wanted to be an apostle, you follow me. Jesus obeyed his father and chose even Judas, knowing up front that Judas was going to betray him and facilitate his execution. Jesus notifies us of this in John 6, verse 64. He's commenting and he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I want you to think about this. Jesus is going to spend three years face-to-face, intimate fellowship with someone who he knows is going to be a turncoat, who knows he's going to be a traitor, who knows he's going to betray him, who knows is never going to follow him, actually hates him. And he chose Judas. And he loved Judas. He washed his feet. He didn't treat him any differently. You think you have difficult children? Your children are not as difficult as Judas, although sometimes I know you wonder. Now, Judas' betrayal is not taking anybody by surprise. It was illustrated in Old Testament scripture, which Jesus quoted in what he just said, Psalm 41.9, it was his quote, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now David wrote that, and David's probably referring to Ahithophel. Ahithophel betrayed David. He was his number one counselor, but Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. So needless to say, Ahithophel was extraordinarily furious when David had an affair with his granddaughter, and he betrayed him and joined Absalom. Now, sharing a meal, we talk about eating my bread, sharing a meal in the ancient Near East in this period of time was almost a sacred ritual. It wasn't, you know, somebody you meet at Jack in the Crack and you have a meal with. This was an almost sacred ritual. It constituted very close fellowship, and it obligated loyalty and protection. If you had a meal with someone, It meant you were their friend, and you are obligated to protect and care for them. To betray somebody after you shared a meal with them was considered despicable, contemptible. You would not be accepted in society if you did that. And Jesus uses this phrase, lifted up his heel. The the phrase lifted up his heel was like a horse that lifted up their leg, ready to kick you. That That was the picture. And it also might refer to... Um, taking your sandal off and shaking the dust of it, like Jesus said, take your sandal off, shake the dust, that was an irrevocable severing of a relationship. So someone who ate your food and then kicked you in the back with the back of their foot, that's what this picture of Judas is. The whole point is very simple. Judas's betrayal was unthinkable. Even by human standards, you just wouldn't do that. He betrayed Not an anybody, but an intimate, trusted friend. Judas betrayed God and human flesh, the most perfect being who ever lived. And later, in the same evening, Thursday night, Jesus prays to his Father, says something extraordinarily instructive, John John 17, 12. He says to his Father, While I was in the world, I was keeping them, your disciples, in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, 
so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So the Father had given Jesus the 12 disciples, and Jesus guarded their faith, kept them spiritually safe. None of them perished, which means all of them were saved. All of the disciples were going to heaven, except for Judas, who's called the son of perdition. Now, when you use the word son of or daughter of, it means you share the DNA with the parent. You, as a matter of fact, in that era, if you said, well, he's son of so-and-so, it meant you were like your father, right? You shared the DNA of your father. You behaved like your father. And Judas, of course, possessed the spiritual DNA of who? His father, Satan. He was obviously not a follower of Jesus. And this word perdition is a very powerful word. It means doomed to destruction. It means destined for damnation. It means unredeemable, no hope of redemption. It means a one-way ticket to hell. That's what perdition means. And Judas, of his own free will, chose to betray Christ, and yet his betrayal is part of God's eternal plan. And this betrayal was previewed a thousand years earlier by King David. And in Psalm 55, David gives a short character sketch of somebody else who betrayed him. One of the problems of being royalty is that you are surrounded by people who pretend to be your friends but really want something from you. So they, they can betray you. Psalm 55, 12, David is writing, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We have had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of the Lord in the throng. Verse 21. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, but they were drawn swords. Ever met anybody like that? I mean, they talk a line like you can't believe they talk a line. It is just sweet as sugar. And when your back is turned, you feel the knife go into your kidneys, right? I mean, that's kind of how they operate. This is far more common in our world than you can imagine, and most of us experience this. So David is saying, I'm not being deceived and betrayed by someone who's an enemy. I could protect myself from them. This is someone who I thought was my friend. And we worshiped together. We went into the house of the Lord. They were a fellow believer, and they shivved me in the back when my back was turned. Now, Judas fits this character sketch extremely well. He was a master hypocrite. He was a deceiver. As a matter of fact, Judas was so good at deception that the disciples trusted him with their common money bag. They had a common purse, you know, and they collected money for the ministry of Jesus, and Judas was their treasurer. Obviously, they trusted him. But he was a thief. He stole from their common purse routinely, and he was so good at hiding it, they didn't figure it out until after he was dead. This guy was really, really good at deception. And like all the rest of the disciples, Judas thought that Jesus was going to conquer Rome, set up his own government, and like the rest of them, Judas coveted a position of power and authority in Christ's kingdom. Now, Jesus is talking about dying. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to be crucified. And so Judas's dreams of wealth and power are disappearing. Remember, just the earlier part of this week, probably on Saturday or Sunday or Saturday of the prior week, they have a dinner for Jesus at Mary and Martha's and Lazarus's place. Actually, it's at the house of Simon the leper. And Mary comes and takes a pound, 12 ounces, a very expensive spike nard, and pours it all over Jesus. Matter of fact, this perfume was so expensive, it was one year's wages. So you take a look at what you make in one year, and you say, I'm going to pour all that out on Jesus in about five seconds. And Judas, Judah, Judas was outraged. He said, you could have spent that money helping the poor, which... He was a liar. He was greedy. He wanted to get his hands on that, sell it for a year's wage, put it in the purse, and then pocket the money. So he was a thief at that point. And then Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone. She's preparing my body for the burial. 
Right after that, it says Judas went to the chief priest to cut a deal to betray Jesus. Number one, he knew Jesus was going to die. Number two, Jesus had just rebuked him. Now, God had already revealed all of this 520 B.C. to Zechariah, the prophet, Zechariah 11, 12. I said to them, quote, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter and the house of the Lord. Now, this is 500 years before the advent of Christ. God spoke to Zechariah the prophet and recorded in precise detail what Judas was going to do. Remember, how much did Judas betray Jesus for? 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of a common slave. So that's how they valued the magnificent price. They valued the Son of God was the price of a common slave. And after Jesus was arrested, and uh, it was obvious that Jesus was going to be executed, he didn't exercise any miraculous power to save himself from this, Judas feels remorse, right? Now remember, remorse is not repentance. Um, Have you ever, when you were raising your children way back in the day, and you said, if you do that, I'm going to swat your bottom. And they did it anyway. And you went and got something to swat their body, and they said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I, I, I won't do it again. That is not repentance. That is remorse. <laughs> right? They don't want the consequences of the sin, but they're not sorry over the sin. They're sorry they got busted. Right? We do that with God as well. This was Judas. He didn't repent from his sin. He felt sorry for the consequences of his sin. He could have repented, turned to Jesus for forgiveness, and been forgiven, but he didn't. He tried to expiate his guilt by confessing to the priest. So he goes to the priest, the chief priest, and says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Well, yes, you have, but this is a heck of a time to have some insight about it, right? And he tries to expiate his conscience. He returns the money to them, and and you know what they say? That's your problem, schmuck. Go deal with it yourself. That's what they say. Deal with it yourself. It's none of our concern. He throws the money on the floor, the silver, in the priest's part of the temple, throws the money on the temple floor, and he's, he's overwhelmingly guilty that he has betrayed the Son of God, and instead of confessing, he tries to stop the guilt by suicide. Now, Acts 1, 18 to 19, indicate that while hanging himself, either the branch of the tree broke or the rope broke, And apparently he fell down quite some distance, hit the ground, and Acts 1.18 says, quote, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out, close quote. Pretty graphic, right? We don't know if he tried to hang himself on a tree that was on the edge of a precipice or a cliff and he fell down quite some ways, but the, the hanging failed, but he did die from the fall. Now, the Jewish religious leaders took that 30 pieces of silver and they said, This is the price of blood because we paid it out to execute somebody. This was, you know, this was hit money. We paid Judas 30 pieces of silver so he would give us Jesus. Now we're going to execute him. So they said, we can't use this blood money in the holy temple. Well, their hands were bloody themselves. They were the ones who arranged it. So they purchased a field from a potter, someone who makes pottery, and they use it as a burial ground for strangers and foreigners. It's called a field of blood. That's exactly how Zechariah described it. 30 pieces of silver, the price paid, potter's field, field of blood. God is telling anybody who's paying attention, I am sovereignly in control of every single thing related to the death of my son. None of this is by accident. I have predicted all of this for you 500 years with Zechariah, 1,000 years in advance with David, so that you will understand that God is perfectly in control. None of this happened by accident, and none of this surprised God. It was on his calendar. And Jesus is now informing his disciples before it happens. He says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, why did he do that? 
Well, when you predict the future before it occurs, you demonstrate your deity. He wants their faith not to be shattered when he is executed. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is not caught unawares. Judas does not surprise him. He's, Judas surprised the disciples. The other disciples thought this guy was upstanding. I mean, they trusted him with their money. So if he'd have betrayed Jesus and Jesus hadn't told the disciples up front, they would have thought, maybe Judas fooled Jesus. I wonder if Jesus really is all that smart. Figure this out. Jesus is saying, I'm not a victim. I'm not caught unawares. I'm sovereign God. I'm fully in control. It's already been prophesied in Scripture. I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be fearful over my betrayal and my death. So I'm telling you this in advance. Now, Judas is an interesting character study. We'll try and look at him here in a couple of minutes. His betrayal and Christ's death illustrates something we talked a couple of weeks about. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, which occur at the same time. So God ordained from all eternity that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world. God also ordained from all eternity that Jesus was going to be betrayed and ensured that it was written down centuries in advance so everybody knew that Jesus was going to be betrayed. However, Judas freely chose of his own free will to betray Christ, despite spending three years with Jesus, despite seeing hundreds of supernatural miracles, despite seeing God's love for people and people's life change. What's intriguing is the name Judas, the derivative of Judah, which means praise. Judas literally means... Jehovah leads. Jehovah leads. And yet, Judas refused to be led by God. And instead, was led by Satan. Followed Satan. As one of the twelve, remember when Jesus sent them out on their first mission trip? He said to the twelve, two by two, Go out, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and I'm giving you power to cast out demons. And they came back and they said, Lord, the demons were subject to us. We cast them out. Judas was part of that team. He went out and cast out demons in the name of Jesus and then came back and decided to be controlled and possessed by Satan, the prince of the demons. He freely chose to betray Christ of his own free will and at the same time he was chosen by God because he would do this and because it would fulfill Scripture. God is sovereign, humans are responsible at the same time. Now, Jesus wants his disciples to know that even with Judas' betrayal, your job description as my disciples hasn't changed. You are still my representatives. You are my ambassadors. You have a job description to do, and that doesn't change. He says, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives my Father. So he's talking about the process of reconciliation. Forgiveness. The gospel is all about the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He says, you still have work to do, and this betrayal does not change that. My plan of salvation and reconciliation will continue, regardless of hypocrites, regardless of betrayers, regardless of false believers. Now, you know, we live in a world that is filled with hypocrites. Would you say that's reasonably true? Lots of people say one thing and do something else. The old Greek plays, you would have, they didn't have a lot of actors, so you had actors play various roles. And they would have these masks, you know, that you have on a stick, like a charade or something, and the mask would be the character you were playing. So when you put the mask on, you would play that character, and you might put another mask on and play another character. So the word hypocrisy means masks. It's what you portray out there, but it may not be what's behind the mask, Right? There's the Who wrote a song, Behind Blue Eyes, for those of you that are in that kind of thing, you know. You know one knows what it's like behind blue eyes. Yeah, that's really true. Sometimes you don't know. And you really don't know in social media because the vast majority of what's portrayed on electronic media doesn't turn out to be really true, right? So Jesus is saying, look, you all are surrounded by hypocrites and false believers. The church has lots of them, even with true believers. We all ourselves are hypocrites to some degree. We don't live up to everything we need to. And Jesus said, he said, look, my field 
my church is going to be having wheat and weeds at the same time. There's going to be people in the church that are really genuine followers, wheat, and then there's going to be tares or weeds. They look like Christians, they smell like Christians, but they eat sheep. Sheep don't eat sheep, wolves eat sheep. What's really bad is the wolf that dresses like a sheep that eats sheep. Right? So if you see somebody eating sheep, that ain't no sheep. That's a wolf. Right? So that's what hypocrisy is. Pretend to be something, be something else. Judas was the classic example of that, and Jesus is telling his 12, don't get distracted by hypocrites. Don't become disillusioned by hypocrites. Don't fail to follow Jesus just because somebody else is flaky. Your call is stay focused on Jesus Christ, be obedient to what he's called you to do and his mission for your life. Let him deal with the wheat, let him deal with the weeds. Verse 21. When Jesus has said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said, Tell us of who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Here's the principle. God is sovereign. He knows all things and uses all things, including human sin, to accomplish his eternal plan. God is sovereign. He knows all things and uses all things, including human sin, to accomplish his eternal plan. It's, it's uh, interesting and somewhat um, uh, unexpected when it says Jesus became troubled in spirit. And that word means stirred up. It means agitated. It means he was moved. You say, well, why would holy God, the second member of the Trinity, become agitated at this point? Well, let's think about this. He knew that Satan was going to show up in a matter of minutes and enter Judas. He knew that Judas was going to be in hell in less than 24 hours. He knew that he, the sinless one, was going to be made sin on behalf of the world by going on the cross to pay the penalty for human sin. He knew that in a matter of hours he was going to be separated from his father in heaven and endure his father's infinite righteous wrath for the sins of the world. There was a lot to be agitated about. And he says, truly, truly, it means surely, surely. It means pay attention, pay close attention he says, one of you will betray me. It's a public declaration to all of them that one of the 12 is going to be a turncoat. And the disciples are stunned. They are they're momentarily silent. And, and of course, that turns into confusion, shock, and grief. Matthew 26 says, being deeply grieved, the H1 began saying to him, surely not I, Lord. And another text says that Judas himself said, Surely not I, Lord. I mean, he is a master deceiver. You think your grandchildren are liars from time to time? Let me tell you, I know. So Peter, like the rest of the 12, wants to know who done it. Who's going to be the betrayer? So he gestures to John to identify the betrayer. By the way, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper is not an accurate portrayal of this setup. The disciples were not sitting on all, sitting on the same side of the table looking at the photographer. That's, that's not how it worked back then, right? They, they, they sat around a U-shaped table. U-shaped, Jesus is at the head table, and there's two tables make a U-shape. Jesus is in the middle of the head table. And all the rest of them are reclining around the U-shaped table. They're on cushions. And it's a low table. The legs are maybe like that. It's pretty low. And they're laying on their left side so they can eat with their right hand. So if you're laying on your left side, your head is pointed to the left, which means you're close to the feet of the person on your left. And, you know, you get the drift at that point in time. 
Kind of like you park cars at an angle. Kind of how that works. So at the head table, Jesus is in the middle. Judas is right on his left. John is right on his right. So Jesus, Judas, and John. So Peter is seated some distance away from Jesus. So you want to tell your Roman Catholic friends, you know, John was the one Peter had to go through to get to Jesus. So I know, I know you think Peter is a big deal, but in this particular case, you know, John was the one, right? So uh, I'm just saying. So Peter is seated some distance away, and he motions for John to find out who it is. So John, to Jesus' right, is leaning close to Jesus because he's on his left side. And he says, Lord, who is it? And there's, there's a lot of conversation going on. Food is being served, and so this is a private question. And Jesus also responded privately, and he didn't give him a name. He says, I'm going to do an action, and this action is going to demonstrate who the betrayer is. So Jesus dipped the morsel of bread, gave it to Judas, immediately on Jesus' left. At that moment, John, and only John, knew that Judas was the trigger guy. Right? So a meal, this was a Passover meal. Let me explain a little bit about this. It, it, it might consist of several courses. They were not going to get to the roast lamb for a while yet, but this was part of the meal. And in a large bowl at that time, they would put in raisins, figs, dates, things like that. They would add vinegar, spices, herbs, salt, and, and they would mash it together. It would be kind of a, I don't know whether it was a paste, I, you know, we might say a, a, a salsa, obviously not to, you know, at that point in time. And they would take unleavened bread and they would, dip it in that mixture, and, and they would eat it. And the host would always give the first piece of dipped bread to the honored guest. It was, a, it was a form of honor and respect and demonstrating intimacy with that guest, and the guest usually was seated next to the host. Well, Jesus was the host, and to his left was Judas Iscariot. So Jesus is treating Judas like an intimate friend, like an honored guest, and he gives him the first dipped morsel for the meal. No one starts eating until that occurs. He treats him like a friend. And even the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Judas comes up and he kisses Jesus. And Jesus calls him friend. But Jesus also gives us his epitaph in Mark 14.21. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, Christ was going to be betrayed, was going to be crucified, just as planned by God from all eternity, written down by the prophet centuries in advance. But judgment is pronounced on the betrayer. Judas was not forced to betray Christ. He freely chose to do it. His judgment will be so severe because he had been given so much access to truth. Now, Jesus gave us a principle in, in Luke when he's discussing his return to earth. He says, Luke 12, 47. He's talking about a master who's away on a journey and he gives his slaves job descriptions. And he says, some of you slaves might fulfill your job descriptions. Some of you might not fulfill your job descriptions. Quote, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready for his return and act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. Here's the principle. From everyone who has been given, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Here's the principle. The more God has given to you, the more God will require of you. The more God has given to you, the more God will require of you. We live in a world where we have been given much, beyond much. The world looks at our culture and they cannot believe not just the physical abundance, but the freedom that we have. You have been given God's word. You stand every week you have the Word of God coming out of your bookshelves. How many copies of this do you have? And people around the world would die to have a copy of God's Word. So we have been given a great deal, and God will expect a great deal of us. 
So how much was Judas given? Well, he had as much direct access to God as virtually any human being in all of the Bible. I want you to think about this. Adam and Eve did what before they sinned? It says they walked with God in the cool evenings. In the garden, face-to-face communication with our Lord Jesus Christ. How long did that last before they sinned? Not very long. At the very end of the book Job, after 42 chapters, Job says, Now my eye sees you. One glimpse. Moses taught face-to-face with God on Mount Sinai, 40 days, 40 nights, in the tent of meeting occasionally and in the cleft of the rock, Exodus 34. But that only occurred occasionally. Joshua and Gideon saw the angel of the Lord only once. The wife of Manoah, the father of uh, Samson, saw the Lord once. Isaiah saw a vision of Jesus Christ seated on the throne in Isaiah 6 only once at the outset of his ministry. Judas spent three years virtually every day face-to-face with God himself. Face-to-face. He witnessed every miracle Jesus performed, casting out demons, healing the sick, sight to the blind, raising the dead, stilling the storm, walking on the sea, reading people's minds, feeding the 5,000, saw them all. Experienced them, was given the power to cast out demons. He heard words of God's love and forgiveness, saw Jesus forgive people, saw their lives changed. Over time, the other 11 disciples, their faith in Christ grew stronger. However, Judas, instead of being drawn closer to Jesus, he grew to hate him even more and despise him. Judas's suffering in hell will be so severe because he was given so much and yet rejected it. Verse 27. After the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose Jesus had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Here's the principle. Turning away from Jesus means rejecting life and salvation and embracing death and destruction. Turning away from Jesus means rejecting life and salvation and embracing death and destruction. Now, after Judas ate the morsel, the devil crashes the party shows up and enters into Judas. He's going to ensure that Judas will follow through and betray Jesus so Jesus' death can take place. None of the disciples can see this, but our Lord sees the invisible, right? Satan is a spirit. He used to be the created cherub that covered the throne of God, the prime minister of heaven. He was thrown out of heaven. He's invisible. Jesus sees the invisible. He saw him come, enter Judas. Immediately, Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. It was now Jesus' time to go to the cross. And Judas was the trigger to start that countdown clock. And Jesus said, go do it quickly now. That was the command, get out of here. Judas knows at this point, he's he's feared it, but now he knows for certain that Jesus knows that he's cut a deal. To cut it, to, to betray him. He knows that. As a matter of fact, Judas has been living in fear and terror for weeks, actually months. I want you to think about this. He's been stealing from the common money bag of the disciples, and yet he knows Jesus can read minds because he's seen him do it. That's like your kid or your grandkid saying, I'm going to take some cookies from the cookie jar, but I know there's a camera in the kitchen. Graham can see you, right? See, Satan was so interested in ensuring that Judas would betray Jesus because Satan believed that if he actually could kill Jesus, his threat to to Satan's reign would end. If Jesus is dead, then Satan is still prince of the power of the air. He's still ruler of the kings of the earth, right? He wants to reign over planet earth. Actually, Satan's role in facilitating Jesus' death 
ensured that God's plan to rescue sinners and save them out of the kingdom of Satan is implemented. This is the folly of hell. Satan and his minions and all people that join them think they're opposing God. They're actually facilitating God's plan to take place because God in His sovereignty has already built in their rebellion into His divine plan. It's part of His divine will. So Jesus had a lot to tell the disciples and He needed Judas out of there before He shared His heart and His promises with Him. So when Judas left, the rest of the disciples had no idea why He left. I mean, they thought He had the money bag and Jesus told them to buy stuff for the feast or give money to the poor. And it says when Judas left, it was night. Not just physically night, but spiritually night. Judas is going to be physically dead within 24 hours. And he was already spiritually dead. At the moment of his physical death, he entered outer darkness, right? There's eternal weeping, gnashing of teeth. You say, well, why did he leave the Lord? He couldn't stand holiness. He hated holiness because he loved his sin. He loved the darkness, chose the darkness, and now is in eternal darkness. We've talked about this before. Hell is populated with people that chose to be there. When you read Luke 16 and you read about Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man winds up in hell. The rich man is talking to Abraham, but he never asks to leave. Huh. Why would you not want to get out of hell? Because you hate holiness and heaven is filled with holiness and you love your sin. So you ask yourself, after all this exposure, what would lead somebody like Judas to betray Jesus? Well, number one, he was, a, he was an idolater, selfish idolater. He loved money, he loved position, he loved power. We know he's a thief. He betrayed the Son of God. He went to the chief priest and he negotiated the price and he said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? We're talking about God in human flesh, right? He wanted to be a mover and shaker in Jesus' kingdom. And when Jesus spoke of dying and not reigning, Judas' dreams of power and ambition and wealth were dashed. So he had an idol, and his idol was money, position, and power. We've talked about this before. An idol is anything you value more than Christ himself. Anything. Anything. Ask yourself, if this was taken out of my life, life would not have meaning. Could be a spouse, could be your health, could be your children, could be your grandchildren. What is so important that if it was gone, life would seem not to have meaning? That may indicate it's an idol. I'm not saying it is, I'm saying you've got to bring that before the Lord. If it's gone, can I go on because Jesus Christ is my center. He's my gravity. He's my foundation. He is more important than anything or anyone. Judas did not believe that. Number two, there was obviously an influence of Satan. Satan's influence over Judas grew over time because Judas wanted it that way. Ultimately, Satan possessed him at the very end. And you say, well, how did that occur? Well, how does Satan tempt anybody? How did he tempt Adam and Eve? He said, look, God is not a good God, and your life is going to be better if you become God. You become like God. You don't need to depend on God. You can live independent from God. After y'all, you are a very smart person, right? You can make your own decisions. You don't need to depend on God. You exercise your will, and your life will be good. And Adam and Eve tried it, and of course, it was disaster. So Judas wanted to use Jesus as his genie, as his Santa Claus. I'm following you, Jesus, but I'm not following you because I love you. I'm following you because I want you to establish your kingdom, and I want to be your prime minister. I want to get rich. I want my ego, you know, I want a, a, a big position in your government. So Jesus is just his method to accomplish what he really wanted. And we do that inadvertently sometimes and I'm preaching to myself here, by how we pray. We say, oh God, my magic genie, please give me blah, 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 and blah, 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 because it's really, really important to me that you do that. You don't have to persuade him to do the right thing. He's God, right? 
if your grandchildren talk to you that way and they never valued you, only your stuff, we would say, no, I don't think they love me. I think they just love the stuff. We do that to God from time to time. Lastly, Judas loved his sin and he refused to repent. Despite three years of personal experience and evidence, you'll notice that Judas never called Jesus Lord, ever. Only rabbi, teacher. Jesus was a good teacher, he was a moral person, you know, he's a good guy, but he's not Lord. He's not sovereign. He's not God. Judas would never acknowledge that. By the way, evidence alone will never persuade your friends to repent from their sin. You can bring them evidence about the lordship of Jesus Christ, and Scripture is loaded with it. But people reject Jesus not based on the evidence. They're based on the fact that they love their sin, and they want to keep doing it. And they know that Jesus is holy, and if he enters their life, they're going to have to get rid of that sin because Jesus will not enter a heart that is committed to sin more than him. There has to be a choice. So how do you avoid turning out like Judas? Well, Hebrews 12, 2 says, For this reason, he's talking about believers here, we, believers, must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And Proverbs 4, 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Your heart is the core of who you are. The principle is guard your heart so you won't drift away from Jesus. Guard your heart. Now, we know that our, every heart is prone to wander, right? We're, we're prone to wander. We're prone to leave Jesus. We drift away from Jesus when we hold on to our sin. We drift away from Jesus when we refuse to repent. You know, the disciples had more than one traitor. We all know Jesus was a traitor. You know the other traitor? Peter. Peter said, with curses, I don't know him. I don't know him. The difference is, Peter repented. Peter came back. He was forgiven. He was restored. And God changed him and used him mightily. Judas betrayed Jesus. He felt remorse. He refused to commit suicide. Who else repented? At the very last minute, within 12 hours of this event, the thief on the cross probably just moments before his last breath said, remember me, repented. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise in a matter of hours. So the soil of Judas's heart was hard by choice. You know, the parable of the soils. And the seed of God's word didn't grow in his heart because he held on to his sin. Unconfessed sin will create a hard heart. If there's sin in your life that you're hanging on to and you're not willing to confess it, you are hardening your heart against the Lord. When you confess sin, it tenderizes your heart toward the Lord because you love Him more than you love the sin. Unconfessed sin is an open invitation for Satan. Come on in. I have relatives who shall remain nameless who died with unresolved relationships because they were too stubborn to forgive. And they were told, what are you going to tell the Lord when you stand before him shortly? Sin always causes us to drift away from Jesus. And we also drift away from Jesus when we forget what he's done for us. See, if we grow comfortable with our sin, then we don't think we need a Savior anymore. And the truth of it is, every single decision we make either moves us closer to Jesus or further away. And Satan will always tell us, you know, the sin is pleasurable, do it. But he doesn't tell you the end of it's going to be death. He doesn't tell you what the consequences of the sin are. The present pleasure gives way, and now you've got guilt and pain and brokenness, etc. So we need to ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the eternal consequences of today's choices. We also need to ask the Holy Spirit to pierce our heart and show us the sin in our life we need to repent of. Do you know, at least I'm convinced in my own heart, I don't even understand most of the sin in my heart. If the Lord showed it all to me at once, I don't think I could handle it. 
So God is very gracious and He shows you the sin He wants you to repent of when He wants you to repent of it. And the more you repent of, the more joy you have and the more sin He'll show you to you repent of. So you're made pure and you draw closer to Him. That's what purity does. Our relationship with Jesus needs time and attention. Judas, hang out with Jesus, but association with Jesus and associating with Jesus' followers doesn't make you holy. It's everyday relationship. It's everyday coming before the Lord. It's everyday asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we would see His Word. It's everyday asking the Holy Spirit to convict our heart of sin. It's everyday saying, let me not forget the price you paid for my salvation. If you want to thank God for something every day, thank Him for your salvation. That you know where you're going. That no matter how good your life is or how bad your life is down here, it's temporary. And above all else, ask the Holy Spirit to pierce your heart and let you not forget the first commandment, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Okay, let's review, and then Tom will come and do prayer praise. First one, don't let hypocrites, and we've got lots of them, distract, disillusion, or dissuade you, let's talk you out of, following Jesus. Stay focused on following Jesus and fulfilling His commission. Number two, God is sovereign. He knows and uses everything, including human sin, to accomplish His eternal plan. So when you read the headlines, chill out. Just chill out. Heaven's got it all under control. God's running things. He hasn't asked my opinion or yours about what he should do with his kingdom. He controls the weather. He controls people. He controls circumstances. Trust him. Number three, the more God has given to you, the more he will require of you. Don't be lazy. Number four, turning away from Jesus is rejecting life and salvation and embracing death and destruction. Judas is just one of the classic examples of that. And lastly, how not to be a Judas? Guard your heart so you won't drift away from Jesus. Okay, thank you for your attention. Keep reading ahead now that you know who. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.